You're listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 7. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am super excited to have my good friend and colleague, Bill Young, join us today to uh, share a little insight on a day in the life of an ex-immigration officer. Well, I guess in the life of an immigration officer, if she can remember that far back, which is really not that far. Um, She's going to share a little bit with us about some of the things that are good to do and some of the things that are not good to do when it comes to filing an immigration application and also just shed a little light on the process. So we're going to turn the curtain back a little bit on how an immigration application actually uh, goes through the process of adjudication within Citizenship and Immigration Canada. So we are... So welcome, Billy. Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, let me start off by just sharing a little bit of background on you, and then I'm going to have you take the time to talk a little bit about some of the various jobs that you've had. Um, Prior to joining and us having the good fortune of her joining our firm, Holthy Tillman LLP, uh, she worked for over 11 years within Citizenship and Immigration Canada in a variety of capacities. She started as a summer student in 1998, at the wonderful port of entry in Coots, Alberta. (laughs) And anyone out there who's had interaction with the Coots port of entry will realize that that was a wonderful wonderful place for her to get started. And then she had uh, 11 more years, 10 more years after to recover. No, I think think she actually enjoyed the experience. So wonderful insight there at one of the toughest ports of entry in Canada. She then went on to work as a senior immigration officer at the Edmonton Airport. Uh, another interesting place. Actually, all the ports of entry in Alberta are, are quite interesting if you've had to uh, have any type of a work permit or other application adjudicated there. After Edmonton, she then moved on to work in enforcement. So Billy has a little bit of background on hunting people down that are out of status and and uh, and and basically going through the whole process of uh, their possible arrest and removal from Canada. So she, she did that in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And then she uh, had the opportunity to move a little closer back to home um, where she completed her career with CIC as the admissions officer here in Lethbridge. And that is where we are broadcasting from today. Um, Then fortunately for us, CIC decided to close a lot of the smaller offices and and we were fortunate to have Billy join us. But we will leave her to explain some of that stuff in, in, uh, in just a little bit. So... Yes, welcome again, Billy. We're excited to have you here, and and uh, I'm super excited because um, I'm sure most people are tired of listening to me drone on in a monologue, and uh, these types of um, uh, interview uh, formats for podcasts are a whole lot better. So great. Um, <laughs> let's let's start right away here. Uh, sure. What got you into immigration in the first place? Um, it was actually just sort of by chance, I guess. I grew up in Coots. So I have to say it was, um, 
you know, just an opportunity to go back home and work during the summers while I went to school. So there's not a lot to do in Coots of, I think, 350 people at that time. I don't even Come know on. if it's you said there was more a rodeo. or less. Isn't there a rodeo in Coots and <laughs> there stuff? There is, yeah. yes. I'm not saying it wasn't a good time. I'm just saying maybe the work opportunities weren't as, uh, you know, fulfilling. So, yeah, I was able to apply under um, an FSWEP program. And so it allowed me to go back home and work there in the summers. And I just really took to it and enjoyed it and thought I was good at it. So decided to kind of pursue it as a career. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, I gave a little bit of a summary on some of the various jobs that you've done, but I'd like you to dive in a little bit and talk about those experiences. Mm, We could be here forever. Um, uh, The port of entry was my favorite, I think, out of all, whether it be the airport or the land border. Um, so you really enjoyed refusing all those poor, I did. poor nationals <laughs> looking to, to just innocently get their work permits extended. I hate to admit it, but I actually did. I always uh, said a uh, good day at work is when you showed up in a bad mood, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. It sounds really terrible, but it worked well because if you did have to send somebody home, you didn't feel quite as bad about it. Nice. So that explains, <laughs> there you go. That explains... The training that officers go through before they start work at, at Coots. I think it's just something you're born with. I don't know if it's training. Something that you're born <laughs> with. Okay, that, that works. That works. All right. So tell us a little bit about um, working um, at Coots. You know, what, what kind of things did you deal with on a daily basis? Um, that was a long time ago for me. Uh, Coots, I started in, you know, 98 as a summer student, mostly with customs. And then I went into immigration. So we dealt with everything in Coots for the most part. We dealt with um, inadmissibilities that led to adjudicating rehabilitation applications when they did do that, um, to refusing those individuals who weren't eligible for such a process. And then, yes, entering or allowing people to enter as visitors, students, um, on work permits, pretty much everything. And I bet you loved landing permanent residence as well. Actually, that was a good thing. It was pretty much a done deal when that happened. So we didn't dig too deep into that unless it was needed. It's interesting how how times have changed with processing times uh, for landing inland and people going down to the border. Um, The days of of even that process being a streamlined, no-hassle situation are are, are definitely not there anymore. And uh, I've had clients and we've with our firm have had clients have gone down to the border just to do the landing and experienced a little bit of grief from officers who are overwhelmed because now they obviously have to do both customs and immigration and it can become a little bit overwhelming and when you have long lineups of people uh, a little bit of a frustrating experience for the officers so don't be surprised if you go to do your landing down at a border (laughs) and you don't get the uh, the welcome to Canada celebration um it becomes a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit more of a challenging experience, but usually you do get it done. Excellent. So after Coots, mm-hmm. uh, then you went up to Edmonton. Yes. Yeah, I went to the Edmonton Airport up there. Um, I actually went to school up uh, east of Edmonton, so it was uh, kind of not necessarily a goal, but I wanted to get back up north and actually try out my experience at the airport and and see how that went. So I just started as a term there initially. So what does that mean? What does a term mean? Term, um, it wasn't a permanent position, so it was kind of a contract basis, I guess you could look at it that way. So it was, you know, a year or six months, depending upon each renewal, and then you kind of just were 
I don't know, at the mercy of whether or not they felt the need to extend your, your services at that particular place was required. So, so for our listeners, can you describe the difference between working at Coots and working at the airport in terms of how you adjudicated applications? Well, the main difference, I guess, for Edmonton, um, you know, a flight would come staggered. So you'd have lots of downtime. So you'd have maybe three hours of downtime. And then all of a sudden a flight of, you know, over 200 people would show up. Um, And so you could be dealing with a waiting room full of, you know, 50 people at once. So um, the pressure to get them through a little quicker um, maybe is there. Uh, You also maybe considered whether or not how quickly you wanted to turn someone away who would maybe have to get back on a flight and arrange those details over sending them back home in their car. So obviously when you're on the border and you have someone that shows up in a vehicle, Mm -hmm. it's a whole lot easier to turn someone around uh, if you don't want to admit them to Canada than if they arrive on a plane. So how often did it happen? How often did people actually get put on a plane and sent sent back? Um, Often. It still happens. It, you know, if if it's warranted that the refuse, refusal is needed and it's there, um, you're going to turn them back and because it, it is doable. It just takes a little more legwork from the officer themselves. So um, if it's one of those 50-50 cases where if the need to be facilitative can be granted, um, in my opinion, or at least for me, I tried to facilitate if it was warranted, but if it was, you know, needed, it was an obvious choice to refuse them. So, um, for example, my first day, I think out at the airport when I went to Saskatoon after that, I refused probably three or four people Hmm. right away just because that it needed to be done (laughs) and maybe it was a bad day. (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) So there's a couple things uh, that our listeners, I guess, can learn from this experience. One, if you've got a situation that is a little bit more borderline, you're probably better off flying someone into Canada than driving. And uh, now when I say borderline, you definitely don't want to submit an application that you you believe that, you know, you don't qualify for. Um, but ultimately, if an officer has uh, the choice of turning you around in a vehicle versus going through the hassle of, of getting you returned on a flight, um, they're probably going to be a little bit more lenient and, and forgiving at an airport than they will at a land crossing. Well, that's great. That's that, that's super. So, um, all right. So, Edmonton. So, let's let's say you've got a situation where a businessman is flying into the airport and um, they show up and say they're coming in for meetings and you realize, you know, that maybe they're doing a little bit more than just meeting and you think, hmm, this person may need a work permit. How did you make a decision or what were some of the factors that you looked at in deciding whether or not to assist them and, and tell them, yes, they need a work permit and, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll assist you in, in obtaining a short one to bridge your gap while you're here versus uh, the times when you said, no, I'm going to refuse your entry. You have to go back home. What were some of the factors that you looked at when you were trying to make that decision? Uh, For me, the biggest factor would have been their initial answers to the questions, whether it be at primary. So that would be your first um, point of contact when you get off the plane. So that first officer in regards to what the purpose of their trip was. So how 
much information they may have given to that first officer and then compare that information to then maybe the answers to the questions that they received in the secondary immigration. So what you're saying is, is that if someone comes and uh, is a little evasive or may not be entirely truthful, that the desire to facilitate uh, that entry may be less likely when people are a little more dishonest. Correct. It becomes less and less anyways. Um, and then from there, usually uh, at the airport as well, we had um, a little more flexibility. Or I wouldn't say flexibility, but customs and immigration at that time anyways um, worked fairly closely together within the airport. So it was very easy to grab someone's luggage off of the belt and look through it to determine maybe if there's information there that, again, would potentially either credit or discredit what they were telling you. So um, that could be from documentation that they would have had maybe stolen their luggage, not in their carry-on, to, as they still do now, going through their phone, emails, that type of thing, to just, again, make sure that all of the information lines up. You bet. And with the, the world of our handhelds holding every ounce of information about our lives, it's pretty easy for an officer to get to the bottom of a somewhat questionable uh, uh, request for entry and, uh, and compare that to what the individual had actually said. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. Very interesting. All right. So you then transition from the airport mm -hmm. into enforcement. So talk a little bit about that. Um, it was great, actually. It was it was um, pretty exciting, uh, a change of pace in regards to getting out of the office. So um, when you're doing enforcement or inland enforcement, you do a lot of, you know, investigations, whether it be same thing, document-based, going through documents and information that is submitted within an application to following up on tips, which may lead you to go knocking on doors, um, investigating whether or not a relationship is actually genuine, um, if a student is going to school or not. Um, okay, so, so let's stop you there. So, <laughs> so how does it start? The CIC, uh, you know, in the case now, it's managed by the Canada Border Service yeah. Agency. Do they just, you know, randomly go out and, you know, do spot checks and things like that on people? Or what initiated enforcement action in, in the majority of cases? Well, yeah, I can't really speak to it now with CBSA and CIC split. But for Saskatoon, for example, um, yes, I was an enforcement officer, but it was still a smaller office. So you did everything. So on an application that I may have been working on, let's say as an admissions officer, um, whether so a spousal, let's just say, for example. Mm -hmm. And as you're going through that application, the information isn't quite adding up or you have concerns as to whether or not the relationship is actually genuine, um, then you would have to put your enforcement hat on and go out and, yeah, just do a little knock on the door and have a look at whether or not they were really living in a husband-wife, let's say, situation or common-law relationship, uh, depending on whatever the application was. And you kind of go from there. So a lot of the times it was based on an application that was received we would, you know, look at it and determine whether or not further investigation was warranted that required us to actually, yeah, just go out and do a, a spot check or um, just kind of go from there. Otherwise, it would come from city police, you know, when you're dealing with potential criminality and that type of thing where you had to go actually arrest and find someone in that regard. So Cool. Okay, so did you do stakeouts? 
No steak. Well, not your steakouts in a movie, I guess. No. People do like to um, rat out their neighbors. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so we would get tips and then we would go and wait for that particular individual or I guess for fun informant to then leave the house where the person they were ratting out was particularly you know, living or staying and so someone who actually lived go. with them, they, they ratted out their own friends. Correct. Ah, you know, that's interesting because I would have to, based on, you know, the experience I've had, the vast majority of investigations, um, usually come to the attention of the government in that way. So if you are the kind of person who is very open and shares all about your life, <laughs> but you just happen to be working without authorization in Canada, it's your friend beside you that's working or your roommate uh, that you've just had a falling out with that tends to be the one to call CIC's tip line or ESDC, if it's a, a, an LMIA-based work permit issue, uh, to notify the government about some terrible unauthorized person. And it, you know, if that's you, that's you, you, and you're wondering, why are they calling? How did they find out? Well, Trust me, it's usually because of someone that you know. Interesting. So, okay, so you so you get this tip, okay. and you you go. So, so what do you do? Walk you walk through the process. So you get this tip. You you figure out where they live, mm -hmm. and and then you just go right up to the door and knock on the door and say, "Hmm, I'm so and so. Is so and so there?" And then now that that sounds like the cop shows I've watched. It is. You're not far off. We do just go knock on the door and. Uh, sometimes they will open it. You have sometimes to break the they door will down not. And, and the, the latch holding the door no. in? No. No? Mm -mm. Oh, okay. No, didn't go that far. Oh. <laughs> no, yeah. They sometimes would answer the door. And then, yeah, you kind of, at least in those capacities, because a lot of people would go, I guess, underground for lack of a better word. So when we did get a tip on an individual we were looking for that, you know, wasn't overstay or working illegally or, uh, may have had a criminal charge and he was here as a temporary resident that we had to track down. Um, yeah, when we got that tip, sometimes you had a really small window to go and find them at a buddy's house or at a restaurant down the street or whatever the case may be. So we would just show up. The best way is, you know, element of surprise. And then you have them at that point. So then you interview them and get what you need. And if you need to, yeah, detain them. So Okay. So did you have anyone like run when they saw you? Hmm. I wouldn't say run. Never had to do a little foot chase or anything like that. Um, did, we, they, did they lie about their identity and say, it's not me? Uh, well, we had someone not answer the door, for example, but we could see them in the window. And yet still, when we called them, <laughs> had the ability to answer the phone and say, no, I'm not home. So so when you called them, what, what did they say? Um, somewhere else? I'm at school. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. And so obviously you... Knocked on the window and said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't too difficult. And then they, they let you in and then yes. did you d detain them? Mm, I'm trying to remember. Not at that point. I don't think so. Mm. Um, actually, no, with him we did. We did. And we took him back to the office just for the fact that he was continually a, a flight risk at that point. He, uh. he was very evasive. So it was a long, long time before we were able to really track him down and get a hold of him. So we mm. did. A flight risk. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the factors that you look at when you're determining whether or not to detain someone. So yes. what factors do you look at? What makes you feel like, mm, maybe I should detain this person. Uh, I can probably just let them know that we're going to be hunting them down later when the investigation goes forward. And 
So that, what are the factors? At that point, it usually um, goes to their immigration history, the history they've had with the department, whether it be CIC, um, CBSA now, um, you know, their interactions at the port of entry um, and other departments as well. So their background, whether it be, um, you know, if they criminality, for example, dependent upon what types of criminality they might have that would warrant the fact that, yeah, they have clear examples of um, being evasive and a flight risk before. So um, those are factors that you would kind of consider is really just a, a history, not the fact that maybe one time they didn't answer the phone or they missed an interview once. Um, for me anyways, I wouldn't have considered that uh, a flight risk at that point. It would kind of have to be a, a multitude of things that added up. Hmm. So with your uh, um, seek and find and, you know, track down and enforce mm -hmm. what made you decide to leave that glorious world and come back to windy lethbridge alberta and uh sit back in an office well oddly enough i didn't actually agree with the split of cic and cbsa um, when that happened i happened to be on maternity leave so um, kind of being more of a senior officer at that point, I had the ability and the choice um, to stay with CIC or go with CBSA. Okay, I'm going to stop so, you there. So you're talking about this split. Mm -hmm. So what what happened? What 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 occurred? Uh, oh man, I don't the details. I don't know. I probably will get them wrong a little bit because it was a while ago, or I guess maybe the years. The only way I can remember is simply because I was on. I was coming back from a removal when the whole. I think it was Irpa came in. I want to say Liberals were probably in power at that time, um, so they had changed the Immigration Act um, or revamped it, I guess, to now be called Irpa. Um, and then at that point, there and, was and that was. 2002. 2002 and I know because that was the year that I worked on the border yeah and I received the training in the old <laughs> act and then they yeah. moved it to the new and it was wonderful for me because um, none of the officers uh, really knew what they were doing with this new legislation mm -hmm. and so I had one year of law school in my under my belt and they somehow figured that I knew how to interpret law which of course <laughs> I didn't but I didn't let them know so it totally leveled the playing field so I didn't feel like some junior officer who didn't know anything because yeah. no one knew anything. And uh, it was quite an interesting time because uh, some of the enforcement provisions were not clearly defined in terms of what it would take to trigger um, an actual finding of, uh, of, of uh, you know, an offense under the act. And so we were basically creating policy by the decisions we were making. <laughs> so yeah, that was an interesting time. So 2002 and, yeah. and all of that, I think kind of came Just to a head after 9-11 as well, right? So that you know, 2001, um, that September 11th, that date, uh, mm -hmm. the infamous date is, I think to some extent played a little bit of a role in the decision to, to make a change. Because when I worked on the border, there were, it was Canada customs and, um, and, uh, and immigration, citizenship and immigration Canada. So although I was on the border working as an immigration officer, I worked with CIC as opposed to, uh, the customs guys who did the search and seizure and catching the, the individuals with the drugs in the horse trailer they're trying to bring into Canada. Mm -hmm. So, so talk a little bit more about that, that split. Well, yeah, I think it just sort of all stemmed from the change of the act and then moving forward from there, trying, like you say, it was not really clear as to where enforcement began, where CIC, you know, started with the facilitation, that type of thing. Um, so, 
I believe anyways, they felt that the best way to kind of make a separation of CIC being the nice guys and CBSA being the bad guys um, with the decision making might be a place to start. Yeah, the good cop, bad cop Kinda. scenario, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. So that explains yeah. it. So now you've got the, the, the bad cop. Well, maybe Not bad really. cop isn't the best way to describe it, but the definitely the enforcement-minded entity on the borders. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was all consolidated, right, into the Canada Border Service Agency. Yes, but within Canada, that also took away the inland enforcement. So inland enforcement officers became a part of CBSA eventually. So, um, and to me, that was not really a very easy or clear split, especially if you stayed, um, with CIC, uh, simply because the, you know, the delegation of authority still overlapped. So as a, as a citizenship and immigration, you know, officer not working with CBSA, you could still find yourself reviewing an application where you come upon somebody who isn't admissible and you still had the ability to report, um, and, you know, issue a removal order against that person. Uh, but then it comes down to once upon a time, you followed that file all the way through to if that individual wasn't willing to comply and leave Canada, if that was the result of the decision, um, then it has to be referred to CBSA to follow up with it. And depending upon where that particular case falls within their priority list, then you have an individual in limbo. So yeah, then you just, you would have to forward it on to CBSA and, and give them your you know, your file, your notes, whatever the case might be, the removal order potentially that was already issued, and they would hopefully have the resources to follow up with it. Hmm. That's interesting. So in the old days, you were able to uh, adjudicate an application. If you found something that you were questioning, you could actually go out and investigate it yourself to some extent. And whereas now you'd have to turn that over to another officer who may or may not see it as a priority. And therefore the application sits. Hmm. And, uh, takes a long time okay so so you, you came back to CIC here yes. here in Lethbridge and mm-hmm. then what what role did you fill what were what, what was the job like um, well it wasn't much different from when I was in Saskatoon doing the inland work even though I was you know designated enforcement and did the airport as well in Saskatoon uh, when I came back to Lethbridge that was when uh, in 2006 so after CIC CBSA work Um, clearly separated. So I came back with CIC as an admissions officer. So uh, within the Lethbridge office, I dealt with, you know, visitor records, study permits, permanent resident applications. So um, from adjudicating a permanent resident application, primarily spousals and humanitarian and compassionate grounds of the agency applications to the landings or granting of permanent residents. Um, And same thing, still dealing with potential criminality within applications um, that resulted in whether it be reporting and issuing removal orders to looking at granting um, rehabilitation applications, temporary resident permits, um, and all the way up to dealing with inland refugee claimants. Hmm. Interesting. So essentially you got the difficult cases. Yes. So the applications would originally go to Vegreville mm-hmm. and then if they found something that was required a little bit further investigation, they passed those ones on to you. Correct. Hmm. So you had opportunities to bring people in for interviews, to, like you said, send out the enforcement officers to do a little investigation if needed. Mm-hmm. You had experience doing those kinds of things. Yeah, it was great. We did have a CBSA officer in Lethbridge, in the Lethbridge office when I worked there. So there was just myself as the admissions officer, that's it, and one CBSA officer. Um, And it actually, you know, 
it does help when you have a good relationship with CBSA um, because they are more likely to then, you know, help you out when needed a little more investigation or a little bit more information into a file that, you know, is just better served when somebody can actually go out and physically look and view what situation that that person might be in. Hmm. It's interesting. I, uh, that officer, he's a, he's a, a good guy. Um, I would know instantly when they were starting to investigate uh, certain employers in town because my phone would start to ring. And uh, those were some fun days. And uh, yeah, I can see totally that, you know, when you have that good relationship and it goes the same for any time a person is interacting with an enforcement, you are far better off to be cooperative and to work with them because then um, you know, then you can plead for mercy essentially. And I remember that the, the one officer told me that he had a, a two strike rule. So essentially if you, uh, were advised or weren't, weren't advised clearly about your, um, the restrictions on your entry, if it was work or study that, you know, he had a tendency to give people at least one pass before throwing the book at them. And so, um, whenever someone came to see me, they probably wondered why they came to see me. I would often just tell them, well, let's go talk to the officer. Let's tell them everything and then <laughs> throw, uh, throw ourselves at the officer's mercy. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I didn't have a single time in, in those circumstances when people came with relatively clean hands where the officers were not more facilitative. And, and in fairness, I think that uh, most officers are like that um, as long as you're not someone who is willfully flouting the immigration laws and, and uh, trying to push the envelope. Although I know Billy was hard. <laughs> she was, uh, yeah, she's a hard-nosed officer, and maybe she would have just uh, bounced you from the country. But fortunately, the enforcement officer that we used to deal with here wasn't. So. Uh, well, I don't know. I think he was hard when he needed to be, for sure, right? Like in maybe those difficult cases. Maybe it was because cases. of the wonderful relationship I had with him <laughs> that he was willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. It could be. You never yeah, know. Because be. that is that does, I have to say, influence maybe how an application is dealt with. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. How much um, pressure or annoyance or um, I don't know what the word would be that an officer may receive while they're trying to process an application that um, deters them from working a little less on uh, that particular one. Th that brings up an interesting question. So many uh, of the listeners uh, to this podcast um, will have considered hiring a representative. So what impact does the reputation of that representative have on the application when, when you're adjudicating it? So if it's a, if it's a, a lawyer or a consultant that it just has really annoyed you in the past. Mm -hmm. Did that impact on, um, you know, maybe how quickly you moved on an application or the benefit of the doubt? Because sometimes people get reputations as not being the most honest in their dealings. And that goes every, you know, for, for all, all forms of representatives. Yeah, I wouldn't say initially, um, you know, if an application has a consultant attached or a lawyer attached to it, that it has a bad stigma with it. Um, but then the constant, you know, interruptions, whether it be from phone calls from the lawyer, um, even clients, you know, calling about their own applications. Again, this was when officers were accessible, which I know they're not really anymore. No, good luck <laughs> trying to actually speak to an officer who's, who's adjudicating the application. Yes, but when I was processing applications, our phone number, you know, it gets out there or it did get out there and now, you know, clients were able to call and, and ask about the status of their application once they figured out where it was. Um, and that went for lawyers and consultants as well. And the more 
constant phone calls you would get or emails, um, the more annoyed as an officer you would get because that just takes away from your ability to actually work on the file itself as well as trying to get through, you know, loads of other applications you might have. So for me, to be quite honest, after so many times, um, after telling the same thing over and over again, you know, it's in process, you're within the processing times, there's nothing I can tell you today or yesterday or the day before or two hours ago, um, I was not hesitant to push that file aside if I had the ability to do so. Okay, okay. Let's let's clarify something here. So you're <laughs> saying you've got an application that you're working on mm-hmm. and it's it's in the normal processing times. And of yes. course, what is normal? Well, who knows? <laughs> Nobody really knows. The last report I got was that these are guidelines only Correct. and don't call us, we'll call you. That's a very and good so, answer. And so you have an individual who is really anxious about the processing of their application. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a restoration application, which I'm sure you saw quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And they really wanted to get back to work as soon as possible. And so felt the need to call you at least every other day to see how it was going. Um, You're saying that potentially you just kind of put it aside and said... uh, well, there's, there's other applicants who are not annoying me as much as this person. And so uh, I'm just not going to go out of my way to hurry processing this thing. I wouldn't put it that way. I would maybe dig a little deeper for sure. Take a little longer to maybe go through the application with a fine tooth comb because why are they so anxious? That always usually popped into mm. my head. You know, what? what is their reasoning behind just the fact that, yeah, of course, I'm sure they'd like to get back to work, but what am I missing? Because they seem to really want to push and rush this application through. So I'm going to look a little harder and see what's going on here. And yeah, maybe take a little longer or, you know, information that I probably could still make a decision on, but would be nicer to have some more. I would, you know, err on the side of caution and request more information and, and uh, put that file aside until that information was obtained. Huh. Okay, that's a good, good area to to kind of explore a little bit further. So um, although CIC is moving away from sending out deficiency letters and requests for more information to more of a one-touch policy where if it's not 100% complete, we're just going to send it back and re- have you resubmit it, there are still some applications like spousals and things like that where they do send out letters requesting additional information if they feel something is missing. And, and obviously when something is referred to a local office, there's an opportunity for them to go outside the box a little bit in terms of what they're asking to uh, individuals to, to provide to prove their case. Um, but in those circumstances, let's say you send out a letter and it says you have 30 days to respond. Let's say they respond in two days. What becomes of the file once you send out that letter? Does it just, well, I'm going to let you answer that. What, what becomes of the file? Um, at that time we would do what we would call, you would BF the file. So you would put a bring forward. BFF? (laughs) No, (laughs) not even close. (laughs) You would put a bring forward date on the file, uh, for those 30 days or whatever the deadline was to provide the information. Um, even if the information came, you know, the next week or within a couple of days, um, in those cases where... I would like a little more time to go through them. I wouldn't necessarily bring the file forward again until the 30 days, whether or not the information was actually put on the file a week or or two after the request. I would wait for the 30 days. Hmm. 
but that was not in all cases. So, uh, for example, when you're dealing with a permanent resident application and you have a little bit more of deadlines in regards to medicals expiring, um, you know, your criminality checks expiring, etc. When you request information, you sometimes have some tight deadlines. And if they get the information to you quicker, great. That's one more file you can push off your desk and finalize. So awesome. it kind of works both ways. It's really dependent upon the officer. Um, and I think that's a big thing for people to realize. It really is dependent on what officer you get that's processing your application and what their thresholds might be as to what they require and in the time frames they need. Perfect. Well, we're going to step aside here for a little bit, grilling uh, <laughs> Billy on her experience uh, as an officer. Uh, when we come back, we are going to address a little bit um, the application process itself. Uh, we'll get Billy to share a few of the most common mistakes people make when they submit their applications, and then we'll end off with some tips and strategies to improve the, the, the likelihood of success and at least um, make the, uh, the process as easy for an officer to approve as possible. So we'll, we'll take a little, a little bit of uh, a break, and, and during this little break for Billy, um, I just want to uh, let everyone know once again that we have just completed our very first pilot course for submitting an express entry profile. And it was a resounding success. Uh, we have had just a ton of positive feedback. It was an awesome experience for me. Uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, lots of really good information I received from the people who, who attended the first pilot course. They helped me to understand the pain points and the things that people are struggling with most when they're trying to submit their profile. Uh, all, all those frustrations, uh, you know, we were able to uh, to discuss and share solutions for all of them, and and it was a great experience. And so now, based on that, exp you know, that learning opportunity for me, I'm going to be uh, taking the second step of offering a new uh, pilot as well for the submission of the permanent resident component. So after you receive your invitation to apply, um, I'm going to then walk through all of the uh, students of this next upcoming course uh, in helping them to make sure that they get their application uh, complete 100% because we know from CIC that it's going to get bounced. So that is the next phase of our uh, Canadian Immigration Institute's uh, express entry course. And then finally, I'm going to combine them both together to, uh, to have the final course that we'll then be um, offering uh, on a go-forward basis. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, like I said, I had a ton of fun. The people who, who registered and were part of it were just really good. And uh, um, yeah, we've, uh, it, was, it was a very positive experience. So I'd encourage all of you to, to go to the Canadian Immigration Podcast website, subscribe to our mailing list. I'm going to be sending out a notification shortly regarding the commencement of the final PR course. And even within that PR course, I will be sharing uh, a lot of the insights that we uh, obtained from the initial submission of the profile stage. So if you haven't yet submitted your profile, register for this next one as well, and you'll get the full picture. So that's kind of how we're going to set it up. So uh, yeah, register, put your um, subscribe to our mailing list, and then I'm going to be sending out a notification to all of those on people on our mailing list to, uh, to register for the course. So yeah, so, so look out for that. All right. Let's get back to, uh, to Ms. Young here and um, let's start with, you know, and it's obviously a little bit more challenging off the top of your head to think of all these things, but 
Talk about some of the mistakes people commonly make when they're filing an application. What were some of the common ones that you saw repeatedly? Hmm. I would say for the most part, um, not providing the requested documents. So not following maybe the document checklist, um, the way that it's laid out. Uh, so those documents that are listed on those checklists that come with each application you submit, um, you need to be very diligent in going through those and making sure you can decipher what are mandatory documents that you need to submit and what ones are more so discretionary depends upon your particular case. Um, so that probably would have been the biggest thing possibly as well. Um, well let's, let's stop there for a second. Okay. Sure. So when you're organizing a package that you're submitting either mm -hmm. for yourself or, you know, if there's representatives uh, that are submitting application packages, um, how do you like those packages to be organized and ordered? Do you want them to follow the, you know, the order on the checklist? How did you actually go about the process? Did you, did you have your own little sheet that you followed when you were adjudicating applications? Or, you know, how did you want the application? Did it matter if it was ordered the same way that's laid out in the checklist? For me, it really didn't matter to be quite honest. Um, the, either the information is going to be there or it isn't going to be there, whether it's, you know, put in an exact order or not. However, it is, it is easier if it is, if you follow the document checklist, I guess, for the best example, just simply because, you know, when the officer receives that application, it's easier for them to tell if the majority of the information that's there to determine if the application is complete and you're able to move forward processing it, um, it can be done quicker if it's in more of an organ organized format or you know there's less opportunity for that officer even to miss a document that actually was there but they just didn't see it because it was you know so messed up or disorganized um, and it ends up getting sent back to you because a, a form wasn't there or perceived to not be there or uh, whatever the case might be so it is a little bit easier if it if it's organized and the best way to do that because there really is no right or wrong way is to just follow that checklist and put it in that order. Hmm. All right. So there's, there's tip one. Um, and this actually evolves, I guess we're going to cover both the things to do and, and not to do all in the same process, because obviously if you're not doing what you should be doing, then that's not going to help your case. So, so just to recap then one of one important tip is to make sure that uh, if you can, to follow the checklist that CIC provides. And the reason you want to do that, is, as Billy just explained, is to make sure that an officer doesn't somehow uh, miss an important critical document that you've submitted and, and then end up uh, returning the file. All right. So, mm -hmm. so not including all the documents. What, what else? Hmm. Make sure you're using the most up-to-date application form. And uh, that can change from the beginning of the same month to the end of that month. So you could start an application or filling out forms at the beginning of November. Um, and then by the time you get around to gathering all the documentation and information you need to submit a complete application, that particular application form may have changed. Uh, so it's very important that you're constantly going back and looking at the CIC website to see if any updates or changes were made from the time you started your application to the day you're going to mail it off and submit it to CIC. That's a great tip because we know that uh, these forms change without any warning sometimes. And uh, if it has taken you a little while to put your package together, it is a absolute best practice 
to go back to the site and make sure that the form you're getting ready to submit that day is still the most current form. Because, Billy, what can happen if you file a form that is outdated? If the officer catches it, because again, just as, you know, it's important to kind of understand too, I think that, you know, as much as you're not informed as an individual when forms are changing, et cetera, um, that information isn't really, doesn't really flow through, um, I guess, in an office setting or through the officers uh, very readily either. It's really up to each officer or each unit to go through bulletins, um, their supervisors to notify them of any changes in forms or regulation or policy that come out. So it can get missed, but if it's not and they receive an application that's uh, on an outdated form, it will get turned back. That's a very good insight too. So despite you thinking that every immigration officer understands every single operational bulletin policy change, especially the recent ones, a best practice would be to include a copy of that bulletin change if it's something that's happened quite recently because not all the officers are always 100% up to speed with every single thing that happens. Um, It just depends on how fast that information is disseminated. And especially if they're not even advised in advance when changes occur and you're filing the day of or the day after a new form or there's a new new policy in place... um, you know, an officer may or may not understand uh, that the law has changed and, and wrongfully, in error, uh, return the application. And it's interesting because we saw that, we have seen this happen quite frequently with the, that special Alberta uh, amnesty that occurred for provincial nominee program or the Alberta immigrant nominee program candidates who were reaching the four-year cap, who were in a situation where their work permit couldn't otherwise be extended, there was a somewhat of an amnesty that was put in place to allow these individuals to extend their permit based upon a letter from the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program and an underlying agreement between the federal government and the province. But that program was not very well published and uh, it wasn't clearly articulated. And, and we have seen a number of people who have had their work permits refused in those circumstances by Vakerville uh, because they indicated the person had reached the cap or wasn't able to obtain a new labor market impact assessment or, or whatever the reason, um, the, these applications, were, we've seen a number of them getting refused. And so one best practice is to include a detailed explanation of that change and include a copy of the operational bulletin or instructions that you received from, uh, from the AINP in this case. Um, so that's one best practice, just to make sure that if there is something that's unique or you're relying on a certain policy that isn't commonly used that you just include a copy of it with your application all right so make sure so we so what's next can you think of anything else um it kind of leads into what you just said in submitting whether it be a bulletin or i would also recommend if you're relying you know the officers are going to make decisions based on fact and law that's what they're they have to do and if they don't do that they're having a bad day if they don't do that then there's a possibility that you know you could challenge it they could lose you could set new policy etc but um, a lot of the times they will go to policy manuals when they are looking at making a decision so once they determine that 
that yes, they this individual has the ability to apply, you know, as per ERPA, then they're going to reference um, the immigration policy manuals that help them determine how to interpret those those laws in making their decisions. So I would definitely reference policy manuals um, if it helps support your case and and provide reference to that in whether it be a submission letter or cover letter with your application. Hmm. All right. Okay, let's shift back to the don'ts. Mm-hmm. Can you think of anything else that, that as an officer just made your life difficult? Um, you know, one of the things that I heard was that when you're putting your packages together, sometimes it's, uh, it's better not to staple everything together because the officers, uh, you know, if they need to make copies, it makes their life easier, you know, just to use paper clips. Um, did that make a difference? Some of those little finer nuances or, or if someone was to submit to you an application that was all in a nice binding with, you know, tabs and, and uh, in a binder, a ring binder that was couriered to you, you know, these fancy little application packages, did that make any difference at all? To me, it did not. Not at all. It really didn't. Sure, maybe it might be annoying if you had to remove a staple or whatever the case might be, but um, it wasn't going to affect a decision in, in my case anyways. Um, You're just going to refuse anyways, right? If I could. <laughs> <laughs> now, just to qualify here, Billy has taken a completely different approach <laughs> in our office to how she helps people with their immigration applications. And And I also wanted to uh, indicate something that I didn't in the beginning, which I should have, is that just recently Billy received her immigration consultant certification. So she is fully authorized to to represent people. And it was quite interesting over the years because um, that she's been working here as our technical advisor. Um, You know, for all intents and purposes, everything, you know, had to be signed off by me as the authorized representative. But I am absolutely delighted now that she is able to, uh, to, to work independently under her consulting certification. So... If anyone wants to uh, to contact our office and, and, and get the expertise of an ex-immigration officer uh, working on their behalf, um, by all means do so. Um, it would be wonderful to to, uh, to help assist you with your, your more challenging situation, which is right up Billy's alley. Although we do like straightforward things too. Yes. Yes, we do. Yes. Okay. Well, that's that's great. Okay. So here's what I want to, to kind of finish off with a little bit is the process flow involved in an application coming into the system. And I know that with Billy working in the local office, obviously applications would be submitted to Vegreville in inland applications. And then the difficult ones would then be referred to you at the local office. And there are still a lot of applications that are going through this process. So, so what was the, you know, a day in the life of an immigration officer in in the office what what did it entail what did you do just walk us through a day well a day in the admissions officer world in Lethbridge is going to be completely different to that for someone in Calgary or in Toronto um, in the larger centers Uh, for example as I stated before within Lethbridge there was just uh, me as the only admissions officer so we dealt with every single application. So anything that was in um, our area, basically. So uh, an individual who would have applied that lived in the Southern Alberta area, I guess, for Lethbridge. So that would have been from the BC border um, west to Saskatchewan border east and then down to the borders uh, south of us. So 
so Coots area. Um, anybody that submitted an application within those areas that went through Vegreville and then potentially, you know, had some questions or concerns and referred to the inland office came to Lethbridge. Um, eventually that branched out um, when we became a little more electronic and we started adjudicating applications that maybe were for an individual that was living out in Ontario, but for the most part, it was local files. Um, so for me, you would get an application referred from Beggarville. Um, it would be a initial uh, file that was physically mailed to the office. So whatever application was submitted to Beggarville would then have to be mailed to the inland office back in the day. So when the application <laughs> came in, yeah. the intake process, you kind of put it into your system and acknowledge you received it and mm -hmm. then... It got tossed on the big pile? Potentially, yes. Um, so really for me, it was a lot of um, prioritizing, multitasking, determining, you know, how many visitor records, study permits, um, work permits you had, looking at the overall processing times that were dictated by CIC and kind of playing with that within the local office to then, you know, help you prioritize whether or not you needed to deal with permanent resident applications, which would have led to spousals or, or HNCs to rehab applications. Um, but for example, rehabilitation applications were um, not a priority. So they sat. And that was dictated by CIC, um, in my opinion anyways, or from what I understood. And I don't want to say CIC in general, but at least within the, the Calgary office, they were not considered a priority to deal with somebody who was criminally inadmissible um, and to focus on their rehabilitation. Um, you didn't deal with that. Uh, huh. So not a priority. No. Nope. So what were the the factors that would cause you to pull one up once the the backlog of other applications you were working on you kind of worked through them and you had a little spare time so then pull forward a rehab and start working on it correct or your supervisor you know um they would do blitzes for example so you know you do have your supervisor your director mon you know uh, monitoring file loads uh, across their area so with Lethbridge it was connected to CIC Calgary so our supervisor was within Calgary and she would monitor of course each individual's file loads and and where you were sitting based on when you pulled that file and started working on it to where you were at in the process from kind of start to finish so um, we would do blitzes so if we got us started to get a little backlogged with visitor records for example usually didn't happen but I'll just throw that out there then we would take time to pull all of those files and work through those files. So till we got through them to a good, good stage or however long we were allowed to work on them and focus on them. So it happened fairly regularly. Um, within Lethbridge, I was able to pretty much regulate my own files and what I felt, um, you know, I could get through timely or quickly and then focus on more permanent resident applications. There are opportunities to work on them missing information, for example, or waiting for criminality, those security checks to come through, then gave you the ability to put that file aside and then switch focus to a more temporary resident application. So a work permit application. Hmm. So obviously if you've got a file that you're working on and you reach kind of a difficult spot, mm -hmm. you'd send out your request for more information if that was required. Mm-hmm. With a difficult file, would you kind of set it aside and give yourself a little break and then go back to some easier ones? Or, or would you just plow your way through and, 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 and just get through and make a decision? What was your strategy? My strategy was with 
really the same with any file. So if I, uh, a work permit file came in and I was able to go through that file at the inf- it was a complete application. Um, all the information was there that I needed to make a decision. The decision would be made as soon as I was um, able to work on that file. And for the most part, at least in my opinion, decisions could be made within, you know, that day within hours easily if an application was complete and you have, uh, you know, a more experienced officer, let's say going through that type of a file that deals with it daily, hmm. regularly. Okay. So. so, so you're saying like for a work permit extension, mm-hmm. it was fairly straightforward. Yeah. You could get through that in a day pretty easily. Oh, easily. No, uh, I wouldn't even say a day. You, how many do you think you could get through if you were, if you were working on, uh, you know, you had a stack of work permits. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how many would uh, a, an experienced officer be able to go through in a day? And I know you're just guessing, but... I'm totally just guessing. Um, I would say, I don't know, I would say five. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty average. If, again, if they were complete, straightforward, no concerns, yeah, start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, you did, you know, you did have the CR, you know, the clerical staff as well that you know, once you made a decision would then take over and disseminate the the work permit itself. So you send it, here you go, mail this out to the client, et cetera. And you were able to kind of push the file away that way, as well as, you know, a lot of the administrative stuff. So a file comes in, the intake process will go through a clerical staff um, to then, you know, put that file on an officer's mm. desk or assign that file. Okay, so. so there's an intake person that may or may not be super trained in adjudicating applications. They don't, yeah, they don't adjudicate applications. They strictly... They, they check for completeness? Not in the inland office, no, because okay. that's Fagerfeld's job. It's already job. done. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so by the time it comes to the inland office, then it theoretically be. it's 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 complete. It's just the substantive nature of what, exactly. what they're asking. Yeah, the processing fees would have already been um, received and yeah, the application forms themselves um, would have already been reviewed. Like the file itself was pretty much reviewed. Um, it's just that that officer in Vegreville, for whatever reason, yeah, could not make, could a, make decision. a decision. So hmm, interesting. So when you decided, okay, this is good enough. Uh, you know, this I'm going to approve this application. Mm-hmm. Did you generate the approval letter? This was before GCMS. Mm-hmm. So yes, we mm-hmm. generated our own letters or within internally. Um, you know an approved template still, we would generate those approval letters and send them out. And now with GCMS, uh, it seems pretty automated to me. Everything is already, which is, you know, to be quite honest, um, when it comes to approvals, that's the way it should be. It should be fairly streamlined. Um, here you go. Your application's been approved. It'll be mailed to you. There's really no reason to add any fluff to it. Um, when it comes to templating refusal letters, as we've seen, um, when there's just paragraph inserts, et cetera, mistakes can be made. Confusion on both sides can then ensue. And yeah, it's not very pretty for no. anybody. Yeah. Well, we, we just received a, a request for more information on uh, an express entry application, actually, where there were non-accompanying dependents who needed to be examined. And that's a whole new podcast, that topic. <laughs> but uh, in the same letter, it indicated we had 30 days to provide evidence, significant evidence that attempts were made to have the children examined. And then in the very next paragraph, it said we, we did not respond within 60 days, the application, uh, a decision would be made based on the information on file. So clearly mistakes happen and, and inconsistencies and things like that. But that's interesting. If, you know, with this world of automation, 
um, there are drawbacks. And obviously one of the positives is that hopefully an, an application that is all complete will be adjudicated quicker. Well, that's mm-hmm. great. So I guess we've, we've done a pretty good job. We're closing in on just about an hour here of uh, giving you a little insight into the life of an ex-immigration officer or an, an immigration officer, um, uh, the application process and everything associated with, uh, with that type of a, a position. We hope that you've received some benefit from it. I want to thank Billy for taking the time to share some insight with us. And uh, if you have any, any other questions or you have some situations that you'd like some clarification on, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to our office and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, send us, a, send us a, a question. And if the question is something that we can use on future podcasts, we will definitely use it. Um, so thank you, Billy, for joining me this, this beautiful morning here <laughs> with the uh, snow coming down outside. And oh, it's, yeah. it's not looking terribly pleasant out there. It's our first real look at what I would say is, is Canadian winter. So uh, thanks so much for doing this. And um, sure. I look forward to doing it again in the future. Sounds good. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Your